Hello, hello, and welcome to Dubliners by Dubliners, the podcast that takes you through James Joyce's short story collection, Dubliners. In this episode, we'll be covering The Boarding House. As always, we've got a copy of the episode linked in the uh, description below, and you should check out our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your co-host, Latin Coin, and joining me today, as always, is... John Cofetter. Today, before we get into the story proper, we're going to look at the theme of marriage in Ireland and how marriage in Ireland worked around the time that the story is set, around 1900. Yeah, so marriage in Ireland was actually a, a rarer occurrence than in other European countries at this time. The percentage of people getting married in Ireland was lower than in other countries. Interestingly, around 1800, prior to the Irish famine, uh, marriage rates in Ireland were quite high and people married quite early. But then by 1900, marriage rates were quite low and people married late this was more pronounced in rural areas than in urban areas so in statistics recording in 1911 37% of single women between 15 and 45 were married in Dublin while in other counties this was around 30% in rural Ireland uh, arranged marriages were quite common and this this practice continued right up until the, the 1930s 1940s even An important part of the marriage proceedings would be that the bride's family would provide a dowry or money or goods to the groom and the groom's family this dowry could take the form of money or livestock and sometimes this system was used by the parents of the groom say to prevent the groom from marrying below their social class so this dowry was a, a financial concern and it was also kind of informed who people could marry so for many families getting a, a daughter married was was a concern uh, we spoke in the episode uh, describing an encounter about how the sons in the family, typically the first son might inherit the farm and the second one might become a doctor and the third one a priest. But uh, regarding the, do- the daughters then, it was mostly seen that, you know, there weren't a whole lot of opportunities for women in Ireland at the time. So the way of achieving financial security was to to get married and, and to be secured by their husband's means. So if a family couldn't afford a dowry, the daughter might even emigrate. As, as I mentioned up top, these sort of trends and stats were more pronounced in rural areas than in urban areas. In urban areas, people had more interactions with each other, and so some of this arranged marriages and so on weren't as pronounced as in as in rural areas. Yeah, no, I think um, a factor in that or a, an aspect of that as well is just the, the nature of life, I suppose, in Ireland at the time. In, in, in rural Ireland, you were essentially a farmer or working or living on a farm and I suppose the farm constitutes almost your entire life being both the, the familial and the uh, occupational or, or, or your job or role in society and I, I suppose it's a cultural thing we, we, we've touched on this before the idea of constantly dividing down the farm as you pass it down amongst your children will eventually lead to you know an unsustainable practice of your, your farms being reduced to nothing whereas in the urban scape of Dublin women's roles are, are, are less clearly defined they're able to undertake paid work and, and, and get paid jobs and so there's less of a reliance on value being generated out of a, an asset controlled by the family specifically but the counterpoint to that obviously is that there's less of a pressure I suppose to, to, to marry off the, the child in the city as, as compared with the, the rural environment. Yeah absolutely jobs such as uh, clerks and secretaries uh, would have been available to women in the cities whereas those jobs would have been completely absent in, in rural areas. I, th- I think the parallel then on to to marriage and the role of marriage in society is obviously the the, the role of divorce and the, the nature of divorce so um, for any of you who aren't familiar with the irish and, and, and british history and of divorce i suppose this 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 is where it gets quite interesting is 
Obviously, divorce is a significant aspect of British culture. The formation of the, the, the Church of England and the, the, the split from Catholicism was driven by, uh, ultimately, I suppose, by Henry VIII's need or desire to, to get divorced or to achieve an annulment that was denied by the, the Catholic Church. This meant that divorce has been legal in the UK for a number of years at the time of this story being set. However, in Ireland, in a move to appease the Catholic Church, the UK did not introduce or did not extend divorce rights to the country of Ireland or to the, 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 the nation of Ireland. Um, and I mean, that that's carried on into modern Ireland. I mean, I think it was 1996 when the divorce referendum was finally passed, finally allowing Irish people to actually get legally divorced. Yeah, it seems uh, incredibly late but I think it kind of points to the core role that the Catholic Church played uh, in regulating all aspects of Irish life especially you know ceremonies like births and deaths and marriage so as you mentioned Lachlan from 1857 there was a provision for divorce in the UK prior to that the only uh, means of divorce was to get a private act of parliament so that you would actually petition parliament to divorce you as a couple but obviously this was not something that was within the reach of the majority of people this means of divorce was technically still available in Ireland but uh, not many people availed of it if your marriage was failing in some way and you wanted to be separated you could still go through a church court and get a legal separation so you're considered legally separated but you were not allowed to remarry because according to the church law you were still considered married this is this is something that um i suppose you you, you see ricocheting throughout the uh throughout the narrative here the i suppose trap that is marriage or the inconvenience that dare i say paralysis that uh, the characters find themselves in within this uh within these relationships within these these marriages these these unhappy marriages so at the risk of preempting then the the discussion earlier maybe we'll just jump right in do you want to kick us off with the plot summary sure the boarding house is really an interesting story in that it's not actually telling us a single story or not presenting us with a single story so much as it's giving us a window or a look onto three distinct stories there's um, three protagonists, if I can call them protagonists, really. They're, they're kind of more characters or, or, or primary characters, each corresponding to, to one of the three stories. You've got Mrs. Mooney, who's the madam or the owner of the, this titular boarding house. One of her guests, Bob Dorn, a 34, 35-year-old guest of the boarding house, and her daughter, Polly Mooney. This story has a slightly different narrative structure than we've seen in, in the previous stories, given that we have these multiple different narratives. The first narrative structure of Mrs. Mooney is very reminiscent of Evelyn, where we have her reminiscing on circumstances and events that led up to the core of the story, and then also a prospective consideration of what will happen in the, in the future, what could happen to her as a result of this. Next up, we have Bob Dorn, who is similarly reminiscing on the same events, but from a slightly different perspective, his own, obviously, and his interpretation of those events. And then finally, we have the last leg of the story being given from Polly Mooney's perspective and her continuation or, or, or a slight continuation or, or perspective look at, at, at what happens next. What I've done there is given you a great sense of the structure of the story, but I haven't actually told you about the events of the story, which very briefly, I suppose, involves an unspoken agreement, if I can call it that, between Polly and her mother, Mrs. Mooney, in pursuing an arguably, I suppose, illicit or, or at least very salacious relationship with uh, Mr. Dorn in the boarding house itself. There's an implication we're never explicitly discussed, I suppose, and this is something we'll talk about, whether Polly is now pregnant as a result of this, but the conclusion is that Mrs. Mooney is going to force Mr. Dorn to propose to and marry her daughter Polly as a reparation for sullying her honour or 
you know, taking taking her virginity again. This is never made explicit in the story, so it's 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 um, to be discussed as to whether or what the significance of this is. As a final parting note, just to, to flag that this story doesn't actually end here. Similar to to Galance and the character of Lenahan, Bob Doran appears again in Ulysses across a number of chapters, and in fact, some of the events of this story are, are, are referenced again in, in in that book. So that gives you a good sense of the the plot of the story, or at least as much as I think we we want to comfortably give you away here without diving too deep into the discussion. Um, John, do you want to tee us up for how we're going to tackle this one and then we can uh, jump into the analysis? Yeah, I think um, I, I noticed as I'm listening to you retell the plot, I think one of the difficulties in summarizing this story is that a lot of the details are left out, that there are a lot of things that are implied rather than explicitly stated. So uh, it makes it makes summarizing the plot a little bit difficult. But anyway, to frame this story, uh, well, we've talked previously about previous stories, say, uh, Araby kind of being an undermining of a typical Arturian myth, a kind of a grail crest. I think we can look at this story as kind of undermining a typical romance novel or a romance narrative in that in your standard romance novel you have these two star-crossed lovers who are kind of drawn together by their love for one another and it seems like fate and society is trying to pull them apart. Uh, You might think of uh, Mr. Darcy and Lizzie Bennet, Romeo and Juliet, yeah, all these all these lovers who are by societal circumstances kind of pulled apart, but who have a love for each other and, and are drawn to each other. In this story, you almost have the opposite, where you have two lovers who don't seem to care about each other all that much. I mean, they enjoy you know their their brief encounters. There doesn't seem to be any deep feeling between them. Uh, and meanwhile, you have a society, particularly in the guise of Mrs. Mooney, that's conspiring to push them together, to push them to be married. And it raises lots of questions around uh, again paralysis in Dublin about who can act and how they can act around determinism how much of their life can people actually determine and how much is determined for them um, and yeah and as I said uh, Mrs Mooney seems to be the architect in all this and uh, it's with her that the narrative opens so maybe Lachlan do you want to talk a little bit about Mrs Mooney? Sure so Mrs Mooney is an interesting woman she is I would say one of the strongest female characters that we've seen up till now um, I would say I'd rank her up there with kind of Evelyn in terms of moral and, and social or personal inherent strength. And I think the background that we're given on her is that she married her father's foreman. So her father was a builder and she married her foreman. And I think that in and of itself is an interesting relationship or I suppose an interesting structure character note that she has herself been the subject of likely a an arranged marriage or, or a marriage kind of taking place in the context of her parents' personal, interpersonal relationships outside of her own kind of divining or, or decision-making. Um, her husband goes on to, to, to own a butcher shop, becomes a becomes a drunk, and um, ultimately goes for her with a cleaver. This leads on to her seeking a separation from the, from the priest and, and, and explicitly getting care of the children. These circumstances allow her, facilitate her purchasing the boarding house on Hardwick Street, which is just off of um, O'Connell Street nowadays, uh, next to St. George's Church. St. George's Church is still there. And she sets up the this boarding house, as we say, the titular boarding house, which is heavily implied, I think, across this to at least be developing a reputation as a brothel, if not quite explicitly being a, a brothel. It's certainly of a um, questionable repute, I think is, is probably a, a phrase, if I could use that. Yeah, I agree with you. Mrs. Mooney is quite a strong 
strong character. Uh, she's described by Joyce in, in the second or third sentence in the story as a determined woman. And I think you can maybe draw two interpretations from determined there. One is obviously she is a great strength of character and she forces things true. The other is you think if something is determined, it means it's already set out for her. So even though Mrs. Mooney is the active character in this story, you also get the impression that and we'll see this reinforced a little later in the story that things are already kind of laid out for her and that her machinations don't always result in the outcomes she expects. I think, again, we have this sense of determinism uh, when we hear about um, Mr. Mooney or Mrs. Mooney's husband. It's described in the past tense and it's saying there was no use making him take the pledge. He was sure to break out again a few days after. So you get the impression that he's sure to do this or there's no use in doing this, that regardless of uh, intentions that, uh, you know, he's going to slip back to being an alcoholic. And similarly, I just wanted to to draw attention to that, to that word cleaver you mentioned in the intro as well, because that's going to come back later, that Mr. Mooney comes at Mrs. Mooney with a cleaver. Definitely there. I mean, I think it's it's the point you made on determination there is is, is very interesting. I think that that's probably a, a synonym for paralysis, which we've touched on a number of times, is is one of Joyce's core thema- themes for this uh, this collection of stories. And I mean, I think that 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 echoes throughout the story. You see Mrs. Mooney's paralysis or her life being determined, the subject of determination itself, rather than um, something that she's active engaging with. I think at this stage, probably to expand the the narrative, the I suppose the other two, we, we've, we've touched on Polly Mooney, it's worth flagging as well that her son, Jack Mooney, also lives in the, in the boarding house. And I think their presence in the house contributes a little bit to the atmosphere of the culture there. I think the boarding house itself, she references that she's got a spread of uh, different customers, primarily tourists and travellers and, and, and wandering artistes, as well as a core of clerks from the city. So kind of young men who are themselves not established. I suppose the idea of kind of renting an apartment short term doesn't really exist exist in Dublin at this time so boarding houses kind of fill that gap or provide that service and typically you'd expect to be able to get your meals and I, th- I think there's a specific reference to uh, 15 shillings with uh, no beer or stout provided at dinner. Yeah I think these artists um, from reading a little bit about them these people were kind of reviewed by, with suspicion by the general population or at least by the respectable population in Dublin these people who travel from place to place and don't hang around for too long and have in some way an artistic lifestyle uh, you know it, it adds to this sense that the boarding house is uh, perhaps a place of disrepute that maybe it's not such a respectable location and similarly we have this description of mrs mooney that all the resident young men spoke of her as the madam which could just be the woman who runs a boarding house but it could also be slang for a woman who runs a brothel i think definitely the the use of the phrase the madam and and describing mrs mooney as the madam is 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 absolutely a clever jewel address or a a slightly ironic title i think and that's both ironic uh from the perspective of joyce himself giving her that title but also i think the the guests themselves within the within the narrative itself i think are are alluding to uh the the true nature or making kind of underhanded remarks or underhanded comments about mrs mooney and, and and the nature of her uh her boarding house i think the other character you mentioned there is is jack mooney and it's interesting he seems to be kind of one of the more free-spirited characters in this story you hear in this description of him that he was fond of using soldiers obscenities usually he came home in the small hours so again kind of contributing to the sense of disrepute of the boarding house but also showing that in comparison to some other characters in this story jack mooney appears to be less confined by social conventions yeah it jack is jack is certainly an interesting character one 
aspect of him that I find particularly interesting is, as, as you say, he's, he's described in, 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 as being quite a rough character, kind of very using obscenities, and, and, and I think he's handy with his mitts, uh, suggesting he's, he's, he's quite a pugnacious character. But I suppose the, the other aspect of him is he's also a clerk in a commission agent, so he is not not working he's not as low as say Lenin and Corley from the two gallants he is employed in a reputable enough business and and I suppose ultimately he's presented more as a man about town bit on the rougher side but but certainly in a kind of lower middle class to middle middle class job I would say as opposed to kind of the Lenin and Corley we've seen previously yeah it's it's interesting that uh Jack Mooney, but also his his father, they uh, separated. Uh, Mr. Mooney kind of have these jobs uh, where they where they're doing business for others. So Jack Mooney is a is a clerk to a commission agent, and uh, Mr. Mooney uh, is a sheriff's man. So he he collects debts on behalf of of other people. And yeah, I think there's this theme of of commerce that runs through the the story and how that uh, relates to to marriage. And um, yeah, it's something we'll pick up again later. But I think maybe now is a good time to look at Polly Mooney. So we've looked at all the other central characters. We haven't looked at Polly yet. Yes, Polly is a fascinating character. I think she's the really, I wouldn't say the core of the story, but um, I, I, to be honest, I think that that is shared across the, the three main characters, Mrs. Mooney, Bob Dorn and, and, and Polly herself. But Polly is interesting. She's presented in, as being naive and this young, innocent girl who kind of floats around the, the boarding house, kind of flirting gently with the men. And, and kind of always aware of where the line is but always kind of brushing up against it and then I think the interaction with between herself and Bob Dorn or the reporting of that interaction because I, I suppose again we're introduced to Polly in the first instance through her mother's eyes through Mrs Mooney's eyes and there's a suggestion that um, both of them are while explicitly not in cahoots very much aware of the social expectations and roles placed upon them and are able to simultaneously without interacting with each other understand the other's desires and and the other's intentions around the actions they're undertaking i think the the quote I've, I've, i've pulled here is she did not wish it to be thought that in her wise innocence she had divined the intention behind her mother's tolerance. I think that that phrase alone really gives you a good insight into, into Polly. Yeah, this dichotomy or this split between innocence and, and experience or innocence and, and kind of knowledge is core to Polly's character. Um, I mean, it's it's a kind of a question that plays out across the story and, and later, as we'll see in Ulysses, exactly what kind of character Polly has. There's something of the of the coquette about her in the boarding house when the, the artiste gather on a on a sunday night and she sings a song that's i'm a naughty girl you needn't sham you know i am it's kind of salaciousness about her that you're wondering is it is it real or is it just an implied salaciousness there's another question of um, her acting out or acting against the paralysis that she's experiencing in the rest of her life. Uh, it's, it's it's noteworthy. The reason she's in the boarding house, her mother had originally sent her to work as a typist, but um, her father had kept hassling her at, at, at the office that she was working in. So her mother pulled her back to the boarding house and, and, and kept her working there. So there's this idea that Polly is not in control of her own life and in parallel with the control exerted over her by society with regard to relationships and marriage she's also having that control exerted over by her mother with regard to her relationship with her father um, which is ultimately what brings her to the boarding house and, 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 and sets in motion all of all of these actions there is a an interesting idea and i think it's something we touched on in the sisters the idea of repetition within people's and characters lives the idea that this person polly is trapped reliving 
the experiences as a result of ultimately not even her mother's actions but her grandfather's actions in marrying Mrs. Mooney to Mr. Mooney forcing then the divorce Polly can't work outside the home because her father is chasing her down and there's this constant sense of paralysis that Polly just can't escape these circumstances and there's there's ultimately nothing she can do yeah I think this paralysis or this inability to act uh, on your own behalf or act to break out of these chains is something we see throughout Dubliners if I can pick up on one or two plot points you mentioned there there's a scene where Mrs. Mooney sends her daughter, Polly, to work at a, a corn factor's office. But uh, yeah, as you said, her father starts showing up. And when her father shows up, he's not even he's not even named at this point. Um, he's just described as a, a disreputable sheriff's man. And uh, yeah, one critic, Fritz Sen, has pointed to this fact. Uh, to note again, the kind of pressures of marriage and that when you step outside this institution of marriage, when you're now separated, you're deprived of even a name that you become this kind of outsider character in society. And it highlights again the uh, force that marriage has and the force that societal expectations have. And the second point I wanted to bring up was that you also know that Mrs. Mooney was sending uh, Polly back to do typewriting or she was thinking of sending her to do typewriting. And it's at that point she notices that there might be something going on between Polly and, and Mr. Doran. And so she decides not to send her to go typewriting. So as we mentioned in the in the introduction, typewriting was seen as, you know, a way for Polly to, to make her living. But conversely, if she's now going to be married, maybe she doesn't need to, to do this thing. So there's a clear link between... Uh, marriage and its commercial value or its uh, material value definitely and i think one small point to just note there and it, it, it's an interesting one and ties i suppose more into the the literary approach the choice takes we don't ever learn what mrs mooney's original or her maiden name is so this woman i suppose in in, in some ways it speaks to this was ireland at the time but ultimately she marries this man mr mooney subsequently goes on to divorce him but is now trapped with his name and her children carry this name of this man that they have no connection to or no link to whatsoever and I think that's just an interesting literary point there and I think Joyce does focus in on the nature of names and things like that and I don't know if I flagged it in the description but we know the Mr. Doran's name is Bob Doran that's never actually stated directly by any of the characters it's Bob Doran himself in recalling how Polly is speaking to him at one stage says oh Bob Bob kind of imitating her her voice and that's the only time he's referred to by his first name in, in all other instances he's referred to as Mr. Doran which I suppose creates a cognitive dissonance but also flags or identifies the surname Doran and Mr. Doran as a parallel for for, for Mr. for Mr. Moody Sr. being Jack Jack Moody's father again a character we never learned the first name of but is perpetually referred to by his title and the idea that I suppose that that creates another parallel then between Mr. Doran and Mr. Mooney the the idea that this pattern is repeating itself that that, that they're trapped within this repeating cycle yeah I think this uh, lack of first names as well reinforces the idea that these people are yeah they're being determined by their family relationships by their marriages and by their uh, lineage uh, and that their own agency is, is kind of minimized yeah similarly I think this this lack of information we have that permeates the story in terms of their their names is also evident in in terms of the lack of of details we have of even exactly what happened during the courtship exactly what happens um when the um, mrs mooney and and polly talk to each other they have this conversation but we don't know exactly what they talk about we only hear their emotions and feelings during this conversation and the um 
the personas that they they didn't want to be seen as being too aware but we don't actually know exactly what it is they're saying that's actually a very interesting little segment i think uh, as you say or as you note choice doesn't actually give us the text of the conversation itself but by reporting the feelings and emotions of the characters as they're having that conversation you as the reader are able to kind of fill in the blanks there yourself as to what exactly the meaning of what they're saying is and, and, and what they're talking about even though we're given this distant view and we're not given the details of the of the main happenings in the story conversely the language used sometimes is uh one of, of directness so we hear about mrs mooney and uh, that when she when she starts to intervene that she dealt with moral problems as a cleaver deals with meat and in this case she had made up her mind so it's this very again determined this very straightforward sort of approach to things but this image of the cleaver comes back and if if you remember at the start of the story we talked about her how her husband attacked her with the cleaver so we see now that mrs mooney is, a, is a, using the cleaver as her tool to address this problem and we kind of have a foreboding that it might lead to similarly disastrous results certainly yeah there's there's also i suppose the idea of and again we've, we've touched on this before but i suppose the idea of patterns repeating themselves throughout the story so mr mooney attacked mrs mooney with the cleaver now mrs mooney is attacking her societal problems with a metaphorical cleaver and i suppose this this idea that people will constantly repeat the the approaches or the the actions that have been taken on them um i think do we want to move on to mr doran at this stage or bob doran we've uh, talked about polly and her mother extensively but we haven't actually talked about bob doran or just his role within the narrative mr doran seems like uh, almost the sucker of this story that he's kind of drawn along uh, by their machinations um, he is. He seems to be a slightly higher class of character, or at least slightly wealthier character. He has a, a better job, it would seem, than most of the people in the boarding house. He works for a rich wine merchant, and he looks down on Polly a little bit. He makes comments on her on her grammar and on how she acts. And so there's a sort of incompatibility there between uh, Mr. Doran and Polly. Certainly, there. I think there's there's two aspects that are interesting in that. I think first of all, the distinction between Bob Doran and and, and, and Polly, or between Bob and Polly, is partly in, in as you say in, in the in the class element or the. I suppose he, he sees himself as kind of a rising star and I think he probably sees her as, as on a downward trajectory. And I think the other aspect is, or, or the other interesting point is, the, the, the wine merchants that he works for, it's explicitly described as a Catholic wine merchant. And in the first instance, obviously, this is used as a tool to kind of leverage the, the social position of, of, of Bob Doran and, and the risk of scandal around kind of an unwed mother and... Uh, the, the, these kind of ideas but the other aspect of that is and and it, 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 it only occurred to me kind of in a second or third reading what does a catholic wine merchant do they provide the wine you would imagine an explicit catholic wine merchant is someone who provides the wine to the church for the communion ceremony so i suppose there's a very explicit connection there between Bob Doran in the church, it's not just that it's a Catholic wine merchant and being a wine merchant run by a Catholic, but also a wine merchant whose customer is the Catholic church and therefore you, you, you've got this much greater degree of, I suppose, closeness with the with the church. When you think of wine and Catholicism, there's the, the Bible story of Jesus turning water into wine, so this connection to marriages is also maybe raised there. 
You also get a sense of Mr. Doran's character in that before this conversation he's going to have with Mrs. Mooney, he goes to confession and he tells the priest all of his troubles and woes and, and through that he feels a sense of relief. So you do get the sense that his his belief in the Catholic teaching is sincere. It's interesting as well then in that confession scene or in that description of the confession, again, as with earlier scenes, we don't actually get to hear what Mr. Doran says during that scene. We just hear you know, his feelings and his emotions. So again, Joyce is keeping us at a distance and we don't know exactly what he said and what he said is presumably about what happened between himself and Polly. And so we don't actually know what happened between him and Polly. But the other thing to note in that uh, confession scene is that this word reparation is used. And so coming out of confession, um, for those of you who aren't Catholic, the the habit is that uh, once you leave confession, the priest will give you something to say as, as penance, you might have to say for Hail Mary's or Our Father, these prayers that you're expected to recite. So for Mr. Doran, he's given this reparation and it's interesting that this word is used because it's the same word that mrs mooney uses yeah um i've actually got the quote there for that mrs mooney says some mothers would be content to patch up such an affair for a sum of money she had known cases of it but she would not do so for her only one reparation could make up for the loss of her daughter's honor marriage yeah and so you know we've talked about one of the other key kind of words for interpreting dubliners as a whole or one of the key themes that runs through dubliners is the idea of simony that is the uh, contagion of money within the church itself that uh, religious ceremonies or religious feelings are corrupted by uh, material concerns and so you can see here in this repetition of the word reparation you have this clear linkage between what is a uh, religious um you know reparation and then what is a material reparation mrs mooney's deliberations in terms of confronting Mr. Doran are interesting uh, and I'll, I'll read out that quote there she says she was sure she would win to begin with she had all the weight of social opinion on her side she was an outraged mother she had allowed him to live beneath her roof assuming that he was a man of honor and he had simply abused her hospitality he was 34 or 35 years of age so that you could not be pleaded as his excuse nor could ignorance be his excuse since he was a man who had seen something of the world. He had simply taken advantage of Polly's youth and inexperience. That was evident. So yeah, you, you hear in this quote like a very it's a very different description of all the characters uh, than we've gotten from the actual story. Polly is portrayed as purely innocent and Mrs. Mooney it's portrayed as if this whole seduction and the outcome of it is a shock to her. And then she has, as as Lachlan mentioned, she looks for reparation as a result. And this is the closest we get to finding out what exactly it is that um, that happened between them. So I'll read out the quote there as well. It's all very well for the man. He can go his ways as if nothing had happened, having had his moment of pleasure. But the girl has to bear the brunt. So here, the brunt could be that the girl has to carry a child, but it could also just be the, the societal expectation that the girl is known as a fallen woman now, that she's she's been seduced and she's lost her, her purity, she's lost her virginity. Or it could be that you know she hasn't they haven't actually done anything that there's purely rumors circulating about them yeah no it's 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 certainly the weight of social expectations is challenging and it's 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 something that kind of comes up again and again is is the idea that you are performing within this society that you are presenting yourself to the rest of the world and you need to maintain a certain standard within these social spheres or within these social um environments i think this this mirrors in some ways and i think we, we referenced this last month on uh, two gallants the idea that the role women play in society or how the, the two gallants characters kind of constantly discuss the their sexual conquests and their sexual interactions with various different women and within this different social strata whether or not a woman is a virgin is much more significant or of much more of, of much greater 
kind of value or social weight than it than it is in in, in that of, of of two gallants right and 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 we see uh, mr doran's reservations then in terms of how how society will judge him he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because he doesn't want to marry polly because as as we mentioned previously he uh he kind of sees her as a little bit coarse uh there's another section where he describes um he had money enough to settle down on it was not that but the family would look down on her first of all there was her disreputable father and then her mother's boarding house was beginning to get a certain fame so the society mr doran keeps about in terms of his social class and also his uh, religious leanings uh, would care a lot about about these sort of things it's um it's it's interesting when we look at or as we examine this section of the story i suppose the the, the bob doran perspective on it he offers a, an interesting distinction or, or uh, provides a different recollection of, of, of exactly what had uh, what had happened i think he um the the quote he remembered well with the curious patient memory of the celibate the first casual caress her dress her breath her fingers had given him then late one night as he was undressing for bed she had tapped at his door timidly she wanted to relight her candle at his for hers had been blown out by a gust it was her bath night she wore a loose open combing jacket of printed flannel her white instep shone in the opening of her furry slippers and the blood glowed warmly behind her perfumed skin. From her hands and wrists too, as she lit and steadied her candle, a faint perfume arose. I think this description is, is, is very much suggesting that Polly was the instigator of, of, of the seduction that she was pursuing Mr. Door and it's kind of the quintessential, oh, my candle is blown out. Can you possibly light mine? I just happen to be standing in my bathrobe in, at your door at midnight. So you get this this very much this suggestion from Bob Dorn's perspective that, you know, oh, this is um, Polly. Polly was the seducer. And there's there's kind of almost this, this finger-pointed experience. It's... Um, it's it's reminiscent of the the Japanese movie Rashomon, actually. Um, you know, the same event is recounted from multiple different characters' perspectives, and they all essentially point the blame at, at, at the other ones and, and and recast themselves as the innocent victim in the in the narrative as it unfolds. So that creates a scenario where, as a reader, we're unclear as to who exactly is the instigator in this. Because I suppose if you look at it from Mrs. Mooney's perspective, she's saying, "Oh, well, she just kind of stepped back and let Polly act out her own ways." Polly is saying, in her wise innocence she's allowing mrs mooney to you know set the boundaries and she's she's just acting within her mother's instructions and bob doran is sitting there saying oh well i'm just a young innocent man and it was polly who seduced me so it's never quite clear who is actually driving the action here who is who is making the decisions it seems that everyone is just kind of drifting along and being forced into these positions by circumstance or society yeah i i, I think there's a sense at least that uh from mrs mooney's perspective she's willing although the initiation and the start of the courtship or the seduction uh is maybe not something she instigates that she is then willing to use this sort of situation or try to manipulate it to her own ends and definitely i think as even if we don't know exactly who's the active agent at the start of the thing we know for sure that we have mr doran's inner thoughts as he's being called to talk to mrs mooney and you get the impression that he definitely is not pushing for a marriage at that stage and that he is you know he's he's kind of longing for an escape the description joyce gives us at that point is he longed to ascend through the roof and fly away to another country where we would never hear again of his trouble and yet a force pushed him downstairs step by step so two things i want to pull out about that quote is that uh, first of all we see this uh, desire to flee to another country that we've seen in so many of the stories up till now we've seen it in an encounter 
We've seen it uh, in Evelyn and we've seen it in a another form in Araby in this desire for a foreign land. And just as those characters were, were held back by paralysis, uh, so is, is Mr. Doran. He can't flee to another land because he has this weight of, of social expectation again. And this is, the, again, this a force pushed him downstairs. So I think that probably covers the narrative up to the final section or up until the final reveal, the... Uh, denouement moment as, as as we're or at least as i'm very insistent on, uh, on on making it and i think here it creates this really interesting scenario you have this kind of break in the in the narrative or in the, in the in the story itself and you have essentially polly sitting there uh on the bed crying as bob doran's gone down to discuss with um her mother and then she kind of just stops crying and dries her eyes goes over looks in the mirror and then just kind of sits there and I think she basically just starts laughing to herself and and, and, and kind of envisions her future. Um, the quote, if I can, if I can just read it out here, she waited on patiently, almost cheerfully, without alarm. Her memories gradually giving place to hopes and visions of the future. Her hopes and visions were so intricate that she no longer saw the white pillows on which her gaze was fixed, or remembered that she was waiting for anything. And there is this idea here, I suppose, that we're kind of getting this dramatic reveal, almost kind of villainous reveal of kind of it's been me all along polly's been the one kind of driving this whole thing she kind of just heartlessly stops crying and then just starts kind of laughing to herself yeah there's a, a sense of an of an actress about polly which i guess makes sense given the the company of the the artists these traveling musical performers and perhaps actors that that frequent the boarding house that that polly has learned how to fake emotions when when necessary yeah, and then it, it so then the whole story culminates the final lines, uh, which which I'll read out as well. At last, she heard her mother calling. She started to her feet and ran to the banisters. Polly, Polly, yes, Mama, come down, dear. Mister Doran wants to speak to you. Then she remembered what she had been waiting for. Again, this. Then she remembered what she had been waiting for. Uh, it kind of reinforces this idea that yeah, Polly has been. It's been her all along, as you say, that the mask has come off and 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 she's been the one orchestrating it. And just before that, then we have this line, Mr. Doran wants to speak to you. And yeah, what Mr. Doran wants is probably not to, to speak to her, is probably not to, uh, to go ahead. Um, the implication here, of course, is that, you know, he's going to propose marriage to her, that, uh, you know, Mrs. Mooney has talked to Mr. Doran and they've worked out that now he has to propose to Polly. Yeah, when, uh, when Mrs. Mooney says Mr. Doran wants to speak to you, it's really Mrs. Mooney speaking on, on Mr. Doran's behalf there. That uh, Mrs. Mooney wants Mr. Doran to speak to you, and so that's what Mr. Doran is going to do. Yeah, there's um, I think it's that idea again of characters speaking for one another. Mrs. Mooney now speaking on behalf of, of, of Bob Doran again in, in, in speaking to Polly. And I think um, another another aspect of this, if I can just very briefly mention, coming coming at this story cold and, and, and reading it for the first time, it, it's, it's very easy to see almost her that, that Polly is uh, genuinely an innocent 19-year-old girl who has been seduced or, or, or under the influence of this this 30-something-year-old man. And it's it's only then, in this final section, this final Dumont moment, that you realise that actually maybe she's been the one orchestrating or, or managing all of this throughout the whole story. Yeah, and so as we get to the end of this story, it seems like we're, we're straying away from the view of, of Polly as innocent more towards her as being the orchestrator. But I think even though she orchestrates things or even though she has a hand in, in determining how things play, I think she's not really fully aware of how her life is going to play out. So this idea of innocence is still perhaps core to her character, but she has these ideas of what she must do or what her mother wants her to do and how much she's acting on her own behalf and how much she's acting about what she should do or what she thinks she should do is, is still kind of open to question. Definitely. And I mean, I think, 
the final aspect of this, the story doesn't end here. Bob Dorn is a character that appears again in Ulysses. And just to, to, to take out a couple of quotes from uh, that, that relate to Bob Dorn from Ulysses, you've got, I was with Bob Dorn. He's on one of his periodical bends and what do you call them? Bantam lines. Just down there in Conway's we were. Right off the mark, you, you, you've you got this um, this idea of, of, of Bob Dorn in, in Ulysses set. 10 or 12 years after um, after the, the events of this story, he's on one of his periodical bends. So the idea that his marriage with Polly is so unhappy that he has to periodically go on these, these massive drinking sessions. Interestingly, Bantam Lyons is another character that's referenced in passing as being a guest of the, the boarding house here. So obviously they, they've maintained their friendship across time. Bob Dorn appears significantly enough in chapter 12 of Ulysses. In uh, in this one, we get a, a, another perspective on this seduction scene that we've talked about and, and, and the, the, the quote that we gave earlier. So if I can just uh, read this out. Talking through his bloody hat, fitter for him to go home to the little sleepwalking bitch he married. Mooney, the Bombayless daughter. Mother kept a kip in Hardwick Street that used to be stravaging about the landings. Bantam Lyons told me that was stopping there at two in the morning without a stitch on her, exposing her person, open to all comers, fair field and no favour. This section again, just to, to put it in context in Ulysses, this is the narrator, which is a character in the pub that this chapter is taking place in and he's representing the speech of, of, of the other characters. So again, this is a kind of Joycean approach or Joycean technique that, that we see appearing in multiple pieces of his work, but in the specific chapter, you've got this kind of represented language and essentially you've got the same seduction story that we've had from Bob Dorn as presented by Bantam Lyons, who I suppose we, we know, and I think Joyce is being very intentional here in, in centering this or presenting this from the perspective of a character who we know was in the boarding house at the time, suggesting that potentially Polly Mooney's actions were not unique to, to, to Bob and that this approach of kind of wandering around her bathrobe was not specific to her attraction to Bob and was in fact a manner in which she, she comported herself in the house. Yeah, that might be so. But again, as you said, Joyce is telling us this at a distance. It's told to us by the narrator and the narrator in the Cyclops chapter is one that works to undermine Leopold Bloom, the hero of Ulysses, but also to undermine Bob Doran. So you get the impression that the narrator isn't completely objective. And secondly, the narrator is retelling what has been told to him by Bantam Lines. So Bantam Lines says something, maybe he exaggerates a little bit, and then maybe the narrator exaggerates a little bit more. Or maybe it's a, a, a relatively accurate retelling. It's, 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 there's no way to know for sure. Even though the first time you read it, you kind of have a clear idea and you kind of you fill in the gaps yourself as a reader. Uh, as you try to read it a bit more closely, you find that actually perhaps what you filled those gaps in with was your own uh, interpretations. And it's uh, it's very difficult to actually determine what happened here and who's, who did what to whom. That's a fair point. And uh, yes, yeah, certainly, I think that's that's one of the richnesses or one of the aspects of, of, of Joyce's work in general that, that that's quite enjoyable is, is the fact that you bring your own prejudices and... You your own skew or take on, 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 on the material because it, it exists in such a, I don't want to say vacuum, but I suppose in, in a nebulous space or in a conceptual space where really the responsibility for filling in those pieces is, is your own. And again, I suppose that is, I don't know if that's intentional or not, John, but that's definitely a, a gnomon, or I, I would certainly consider that to be a, a gnomic image or, or, or concept. I think that probably covers the deep dive analysis of, of the text there. I think you could probably move on to giving our, our, our concluding thoughts and, and, and teeing us up for the next episode. Unless there's anything I've uh, I've missed there, John. Yeah, no, I think that's everything locked. And why don't, why don't you give us your your closing thoughts on the on the story? Absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, what I'd say is I quite enjoy the story. I, I, I like the idea of interpreting these stories through the, the framework of your kind of paralysis, your simony and your, your, your gnome. And I think that's that's a good key to, to interpreting these stories. And I think this one aligns neatly with, with those in the first instance, I think, 
think the nature of the story itself then as well is, is, is quite interesting in just how they've stru- or how Joyce has structured the multiple perspectives that kind of Rashomon approach appreciating that's not the unique to, to that story but that's a, a good cultural touch point for it just the idea that you've got multiple different narratives all centered around the same event with different perspectives that you can never quite land on any one of them and, and the fact that I suppose ultimately the, the, the richness of this text the quality of the material here you know we, we, we've talked to depth this is five or six pages worth of material it's it's, it's very short nothing really happens again it's, it's another one of these stories where the story itself the seduction all of these things happen off screen or off page and effectively we're just we're much more interested in, in, in picking through the pieces and, and, and what's left of the, the human beings afterwards after these events have happened to them yeah I think I have a similar take on it in, in terms of everything happening off screen it's it's incredibly impressive how little we find out and yet how it coheres as a story that Joyce is able to keep us at such a distance and it's, it's a technique he's been employing throughout Dubliners we talked about the sisters about these ellipses that allied to exactly what happened with the priest and the, and the boy here we have again this evasion of what actually is, is happening and the emotions surrounding it and the moral quandary surrounding it being discussed at length it makes for very compelling reading definitely one, uh, one, one, one question I'm going to ask you now is uh, cast my eye over my notes I've written down it's a relatable story having written that down and, and, and considering it now I'm not sure if it is quite relatable or if relatable is, is, is exactly what I mean by that I don't know do you have any, any thoughts on that before I share my own well I guess it, it depends on what exactly you mean by that I think that within Irish society the expectations for a person's life still follow largely the same beats there's an expectation that one will get married and at some point uh, have children and uh, you know presumably buy a house these sort of key touch points that uh, as someone who is now living abroad and has not accomplished any of those goals I certainly feel when I come home I and I, I hear about my friends uh, doing those things I definitely feel the yeah that the, the societal pressure to a larger extent than when I'm over here yeah there are certain aspects of it that are relatable for sure yeah it's it's interesting as well because I suppose I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm you know, I suppose neither of us are married. We are kind of of an age with with Bob Doran, and there's there's that question: has has Dublin moved on in in the hundred or so plus years since then? It, it feels to some extent that we're we're living through a lot of the same obligations or challenges, or faced with the same pressures that we have in uh, in in previous generations. So it's it's in that perspective, yes, yeah, certainly is, is 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 relatable. And I think as well, you raised an interesting point that you're as an individual, you're you're bringing your own prejudices to the to the narrative. And, you know, that's making me consider, I suppose, my my perspectives on 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 Polly and my kind of initial reading of the the Dunumont moment am I bringing my own degree of prejudices with to, to that in, in, in attributing kind of malice or machination behind some of her actions that, that may be more validly explicit, explained through simple naivety and, and, and simply being young if uh, in the in the modern day if we had a, a 35 year old and a, a 19 year old in a relationship I don't think you'd be attributing massive amounts of intention and, and uh, coquettishness to the to the 19 year old as opposed to the 35 year old man yeah that's definitely true definitely the conversation around relationships and what a healthy relationship looks like has moved on and you know these sort of arranged marriages aren't a factor of Irish society these days uh, but the fact of marriage itself and the fact that marriage is, you know, a, a core component of life and that if you live, particularly as a woman, I think if you're a, a spinster, as, as you might be derogatively described as if you're an old, unmarried woman, that is still, I think there is a, an element of shame that uh, society kind of uh, loads onto onto people like that. Um, so, yeah, some things change, but definitely some some relatable attitudes in the story.
Definitely. I think that's probably it for the boarding house. Um, thank you very much for listening. Join us next month as we dive into a little cloud, another story of unhappy marriages and possibly Joyce presenting us with the, the consequences of entering into an unhappy marriage and, 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 and letting us see kind of what the, the next couple of years look like in uh, in Bob Doran's life before we, we pick it up again in, in Ulysses. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, hopefully you'll join us then. I've been John Clefeather. I've been Lachlan Coyne. This has been Dr. Spider.